0: To justice, a new podcast where I'll be covering the stories of true crime cases that received justice and cases that are still seeking justice. I'm your host, Lindsay. Today, I'll be covering the case of Jodie Jones, who was found murdered just age 14. Before I get started, I wanted to acknowledge the fact that this case has recently received a great deal of attention from both media and from online communities, and the reason for this will become evident as you listen. However, I wanted to emphasise that I will try my best to give you the facts of this case without bias. Jodie Jones was born in 1989 in the village of Easthouses, which is part of Midlothian in Scotland. East Houses and its neighbouring communities had a population of just under 8,000 people, making it a quite small place to be living in. It was one of those places where crime was low, where people felt safe and felt like they knew mostly everybody living there. Jodie was the youngest of three, having an older brother and sister, and her parents, James and Judy Jones, both worked for the Royal Mail. They are described by news sources as your average working-class family. Jodie herself has been described by her mother as a bright and level-headed but headstrong teenager who had a talent for painting and writing poetry. The family experienced a great loss in 1998 when James Jones, Jodie's father, died by suicide when she was just eight years old. James's death caused the family a great deal of distress and Jodie's mother ended up leaving her job at the Royal Mail in order to care for her three children on a full-time basis. During this time, Jodie's older sister Janine left the household for a short while to live with their grandmother Alice in the neighbouring area of Mayfield. In my research, not a lot has been written about this decision, other than she wanted to distance herself from the trauma of her father's suicide. Janine and Jodie were said to be very close with one another, so I can imagine that having her older sister move away in this difficult time must have been challenging for Jodie. As Jodie grew up and entered her teenage years, she began to rebel, as most kids her age do. She loved to experiment with her looks, and in particular, dyeing her hair different colours, such as pink or green. Her style is often described as alternative, mainly due to her taste in music. She liked heavy metal bands, like Metallica, Deftones and Nirvana. In one of the photos released to the media by her family, she's laughing, riding on what seems to be a kid's tricycle, and her hair here is a bright shock of orange. In another picture, her hair is in braids all around her head and you can see a lip piercing, although I'm not sure if it was actually real or a fake one she hoped to get done one day when she was old enough. Jodie was a pupil at St David's Roman Catholic High School in Dalkeith, which she attended alongside her boyfriend, Luke Mitchell. Luke was actually in the year above Jodie in school, but the two had lots in common, sharing a love of alternative music together. Luke Mitchell was born in 1998 and he has an older brother called Shane. His parents split up when he was 11 years old and, as a result, Luke was mainly raised by his mother Corinne in New Battle, a short distance from where Jodie lived in East Houses. However, Luke did still see his dad and stayed with him occasionally. Luke loved the outdoors and had an interest in fishing, horse riding, motorbikes and the same alternative music that Jodie listened to. Jodie and Luke began officially dating in February of 2003, when they were both 14. Luke was Jodie's first serious boyfriend, and it was clear she was just infatuated with him. She wrote in her diary, I think I'm actually in love with Luke. Not in a stupid way. I mean real love. God, I think I would die if he finished with me. If I'm crying, he hugs me and strokes my hair. He's so sweet. No matter what he says... I believe him. Jodie initially kept her relationship with Luke a secret from her family, only telling her older sister Janine at first but Janine didn't keep that secret for long, instead telling Jodie's mum all about Luke. In May of 2003, Luke was invited round to the house and met the Jones family for the first time. Jodie and Luke quickly began to spend a great deal of their time together often walking through a stretch of woodland known as Rowan's Dyke Path that connected East Houses and New Battle to meet up and then hang out. Jodie's mum has since spoken about the fact that she discovered the two were engaged in a sexual relationship, despite being only 14 at the time. Jodie had also begun to get into trouble at school more frequently. Jodie had begun to skive school. This is maybe not an exclusively Scottish phrase, but one we use here to describe someone who's truanting. Not only was she missing lessons, Jodie had also begun smoking weed, often with Luke, and she was also drinking alcohol with him and their friends. Now this might seem quite shocking to those of you who didn't grow up in Scotland like I did, but it wasn't uncommon for teenagers this age and even younger than that in the 2000s to be drinking cheap alcohol and smoking, usually in rural areas like fields, riversides or parks, away from the eyes of parents. I wanted to point this out, not to diminish this fact, but to give you some local context that the pair were probably not the only ones doing this. Jodie's mum had begun to worry about her and the impact that her new social life was having. As a result, she decided to ground Jodie, forbidding her to meet with Luke after school for some time, in the hopes that this would put a stop to Jodie crossing the line. It was on the evening of Monday, June 30th, 2003, when Jodie's mum finally lifted her ban on Luke and allowed Jodie to go out to see him in the evening. Her mother recalls her being chuffed that she was allowed to go out again. Jodie texted Luke at around 4.35pm from her mum's phone because hers was broken and told him she was allowed out again and agreed to meet Luke a little later. He couldn't come out straight away as he was cooking dinner for his family. Jodie got ready, came back into the living room and said, That's me off now, Mum, and gave it a kiss on the cheek. Jodie left the house around 4.50pm, asking her mum to save some lasagna for her dinner when she got back later that night. However, Jodie did not return home later that evening. It was understood by Mrs Jones that Jodie would meet Luke at the entrance of the path at the east house's edge of the woodland that connects their two housing areas, so that she wouldn't be walking through this area on her own in the evening. At 5.40pm, Luke phoned Jodie's house and he spoke to Alan Ovens, the partner of Jodie's mum. He asked Alan if Jodie was in the house and he replied that Jodie had already left to meet him. Luke replied, OK, cool, and hung up the phone. The evening in the Joneses' house carried on as usual until it started to get late and Jodie did not return home by her curfew of 10pm. Alan and Mrs Jones waited and at 10.20pm Jodie's mum sent a text message to Luke's phone using Jodie's nickname. She said, Right Toad, that's you grounded for another three weeks. A moment later, Luke phoned back to tell Mrs Jones that he hadn't seen Jodie all night. She replied, What do you mean you haven't seen her? She was with you. She recalls putting the phone down in shock feeling like something was very, very wrong. She then phoned Luke back and told him, I just want the truth. If she's with you, I don't care. I just want to know. He said, I haven't seen her. Luke told her that he was going to go out and look for her. Mrs Jones began phoning friends, asking if they'd seen or heard from Jodie, but nobody had. Eventually, she decided to phone the police and report Jodie as missing, At 11.20pm, two police officers arrived at Jodie's house to take missing person details from her mum. In the meantime, Jodie's grandmother Alice, her older sister Janine and her boyfriend Stephen Kelly decided to form a search party in the hopes of finding Jodie quickly. They focused on the route that Jodie normally took to Luke's house, the one on the Rowan's Dyke woodland path. As they began to search at the east house's end of the path, Luke Mitchell joined them, having walked the path from the New Battle site. The group decided to double back and walk towards New Battle in case Luke had missed something. Luke had also brought along his German shepherd dog, Mia, who was in the process of being trained by a professional as a tracking dog. Luke asked the group if they had anything of Jodie's for Mia to pick up her scent from and track her. They did not, but Luke instructed Mia, Seek Jodie. Jodie's hiding. Find Jodie, to let her know she was now working and tracking down a person. At 11.25, the two police officers leave the Joneses' house to look for Jodie. They park at the school and head in the opposite direction from the Rowan's Dyke path. Transcripts from the conversations between the two officers and the control operator show that there is a miscommunication... And these officers believed Luke Mitchell was searching for Jodie on his bike, and that he was alone. They believed that Luke had met up with Jodie earlier in the evening and was now claiming that he hadn't seen her at all. Back on the Dyke path, Alice, Stephen, Janine, Luke, and Mia were searching for Jodie. Luke and Mia passed a section of the stone wall that ran along the path with a large V shaped crack in it, leading through to the other side. Mia began to alert and show interest in this. Luke decided to climb over the wall to see what was causing Mia to have this reaction. He began shining his torch in the area when he spotted something white on the ground, which he described to police as looking like a shop mannequin. He said to the group, I think there's something here. Stephen Kelly, Janine's boyfriend, scaled the nearly six-foot wall and joined Luke on the other side. He then helped Alice over the wall as she wanted to see. Janine was left on the other side holding Mia's lead. At 11.35pm, Luke Mitchell phones the police and tells them what they found. At 1150 the police arrive on the scene. The search party are taken to the car park of the local high school, but Luke is asked to remain behind. Despite Luke being the only child in the searching group, The police ask him, and only him, to climb back over the wall and show them Jodie's body. Luke refused to go back over the wall. The police officer went alone to see the crime scene. After this, Luke was brought to the car park, where he sat on a curb and smoked a cigarette with Stephen Kelly. He was then approached by the police and asked to get into the back of the police car with his dog, Mia. Before we go further into this timeline of events... I'm going to go into some detail now about the condition of Jodie's body. If you do not wish to hear this, I would advise skipping a minute or two ahead. Jodie was found only wearing her socks, rolled down as if they had been pushed off when the rest of her clothing was removed. Her hands had been tied behind her with her own trousers. Jodie had been strangled, and her neck had been so severely cut that she was nearly decapitated. Her hair had been torn out by the roots and she had been beaten. Her body was mutilated and there were cuts and stab wounds around her eyes, on her right cheek, her stomach, inside her mouth, on her arms and on her left breast. Her body had also suffered injuries post-mortem. The area around Jodie had a large amount of blood and Jodie's defensive wounds showed that she put up a fight against her attacker. Jodie would have lost around 5 litres of blood in the attack. The detective superintendent leading the inquiry told the media that Jodie had suffered, quote, a high level of violence, and went on to describe it as one of the most violent crimes I've ever experienced in my 28 years as the police officer. It goes without saying that this crime scene is one that most likely holds significant evidence that will help to find Jodie's killer, whether that be hair, skin under Jodie's nails, fingerprints or DNA. But, unfortunately, the police in charge of the investigation failed to secure the crime scene properly or even handle the evidence in the best way possible to preserve it. At 1am, the senior investigating officer arrived on the scene. At 2.10am, a a doctor officially pronounces Jodie as dead. At 3am, two identification officers a photographer and a videographer, arrive to document the scene. At 4.45am, the forensics officer arrives. However, they can't get over the wall due to a medical condition and a new forensic officer has to be called and will arrive at the scene later. Forensic officers should examine the body and the scene as it is found and before anything is moved or altered in order to gather evidence in the best way possible. However, when the replacement forensics officer arrived at 8am, they found that the two identification officers had gathered Jodie's clothing and belongings, but didn't record how they were collected or packed up. Jodie's body had been rolled onto a plastic sheet, and some of the branches around the area were cut down to allow officers and professionals to access the scene with ease. Jodie's body had been left uncovered this entire time, leaving any evidence that may be on her exposed to the elements, including rainfall that night. At ten past ten on the morning of the 1st of July, Jodie's body was finally removed from the scene. Whilst all of this was going on, police had a focus on Luke Mitchell. After being asked to get into the police car, He was brought to Dalkeith Police Station at 12am. On the way there, a police officer phoned Luke's mum, Corinne, and asked her to meet them at the police station, confiscating Luke's phone after this. When Luke arrived, he was stripped of his clothing and put in a paper forensic suit. He was searched, swabbed and questioned. All of this was done without Luke having a parent or appropriate adult with him. The police were particularly interested in the fact that Luke had so easily found Jodie's body during the search, and as a result of this, he quickly became the main suspect in her murder. It's important to point out that none of the other people who were part of the search party were brought for questioning at this stage in the investigation. Not even Stephen Kelly, who'd also climbed over the wall with Luke when Jodie's body was first discovered. Luke's mum arrived at the Dalkeith police station and was briefly interviewed. She remembers seeing the audio cassette tapes used. Hers said, "'Witness,' but the one with Luke's interview on it,' said suspect. Very quickly, the story of Jodie's murder had reached the press and was making national news, which was not unsurprising. The fact that such a horrific murder of a child had happened in a small rural community made the story even more shocking and sensational to the public. What happened to Luke and his family next is often referred to as trial by media. Newspapers began taking photos of Luke Mitchell at every opportunity, going so far as to throw themselves onto the bonnet of Corinne's car to get a good angle of him. Luke was asked not to attend school for a while, as there were fears over his safety and the safety of other pupils in the school. When Luke did return a few days after Jodie's body was discovered, he was separated from other pupils and not allowed to join in with regular classes. Luke and his mother disagreed with this treatment and as a result, within two months, he was suspended from school. Luke never returned to high school after this, despite being legally entitled to full education until he was 16 years old. Police conducted a search of Luke's house, taking items of his clothing personal items from Luke's bedroom and around the house, computers, and most significantly, a pouch for a fishing knife that belonged to him. Just after his 15th birthday, Luke was detained under Section 14 on the 14th of August and he was brought to the police station to be interrogated. A Section 14 is where a constable has reasonable grounds to believe that someone has committed or is committing a crime and can question them, to further their investigation. They're allowed to question the person for six hours and make a decision on their detainment. Luke didn't have a solicitor with him during this questioning. Instead, he had a state-appointed appropriate adult who is meant to be there to safeguard the rights and welfare of a child who's been suspected of a crime. The police start off the interview asking Luke about his life, whose friends were, and about his habit of smoking weed. Police then asked Luke in detail about his dog Mia and her tracking abilities. They then asked Luke about his sex life with Jodie, asking him about how often they had sex, where did it often happen, and what parts of a woman he found erotic. This half of the interrogation lasted nearly three hours. It's worth noting that Luke is a minor, and during this line of questioning, his appropriate adult didn't step in once to remind the police that he was a child. They had a quick break, and they returned to questioning. Luke then asked to speak to his mum, but the police refused, and said that she was a witness in his defence. He asked for a solicitor, but again he was refused. The interview carried on with him being questioned about his ownership of knives, They showed Luke pictures of a fishing knife. They then went on to tell Luke that they found his DNA in a stain on Jodie's bra. This, however, was not entirely true. They had found a partial match for Luke on Jodie's clothing, but a partial match of this DNA can't match to just one person. It's partial. Instead, it will be a match to thousands of other men. Luke was released again after six hours. What is interesting to note is that they did find a DNA match for a stain on Jodie's t-shirt, a complete DNA profile that would match to just one person and one person only. That person is Stephen Kelly, Janine's boyfriend, the one who helped in the search for Jodie and the one who jumped over the wall with Luke. The police's conclusion over this DNA match is that Jodie had borrowed the t-shirt from her sister Janine. Due to the fact Janine was dating Stephen, they believed his DNA was on the shirt through an innocent transfer. They never found any DNA that matched Luke at all at the crime scene, or on Jodie's body. Despite Luke not being an official suspect, according to the police, and despite him not actually being accused of any crime, The media and the general public formed opinions on his guilt. As I said earlier, photographs of Luke alongside his full name were published in the press despite him being a minor at the time. Articles called out his music choice and said this linked him to satanic worship and the devil. They wrote about his clothing, his hair, his lip piercing and framing this look as the look of a teenage killer. They wrote about how he was emotionless, and cold. On the 3rd of September, Jodie's funeral was held at Gorebridge Parish Church where hundreds gathered to pay their respects. Jodie was buried next to her father with lyrics from the song Come As You Are by Nirvana on her gravestone. Luke Mitchell was told he could not attend the funeral by Jodie's family. They said his presence would turn it into media circus and I don't think they were wrong. Instead, Luke and Corinne held a vigil at home. Sky News phoned to ask if they were going to the funeral, and Corinne told them no, but she invited them to film their vigil for Jodie. She said that she hoped doing this would show the public that Luke was not the emotionless killer the press had painted him out to be. Sky News filmed Luke lighting candles in Jodie's memory. Corinne and Luke then sat on the sofa and the interviewer asked Luke some questions. At first, they were relatively sympathetic towards Luke, asking him to speak about how life had been for him since discovering Jodie's body. However, the interviewer quickly began to ask Luke outright if he murdered Jodie Jones. Having watched the interview myself, it's uncomfortable. Corinne has her arm around Luke, and begins to rub his shoulder and neck to comfort him as the questioning gets intense. Later on, Corinne states that this was the moment the public and press fully turned against Luke, and they lost any support they had left. Articles implying that Corinne and Luke had an incestuous relationship surfaced due to her rubbing his shoulder, and the headlines scandalised at Luke being photographed smoking when visiting Jodie's grave. This all helped to fuel the implied guilt of 15-year-old Luke Mitchell in the eyes of the public. Over the next few months, the photographs, articles and public speculation continued until, on the 14th of April 2004, Luke Mitchell was arrested for the murder of Jodie Jones. Luke's trial began in November of 2004 at the High Court in Edinburgh and he was being tried as an adult. Juries in Scotland are made up of 15 jurors and convict on a majority verdict. At the start of the trial, Judge Nimmo Smith told jurors they were to forget anything that they might have seen or read about the killing as the case against Luke Mitchell was opened. The prosecution put across three main points in their argument of Luke's guilt. They based their case on circumstantial evidence. I'll give you these points now. Point number one is that Luke Mitchell had knowledge of where Jodie's body was and had led the search party straight to it. They said that the likelihood of Luke being able to find a concealed body in a large expanse of woodland in such a short space of time was evidence of his guilt. Point two is evidence in the form of an eyewitness who claimed she saw two people she thought were Jodie and Luke at the East House's entrance, To the Rowan's Dyke path in the early evening, around the time Jodie said she was meeting Luke. They believed this was clear evidence that Luke had met up with Jodie and he'd lied about this to the police. Point three was that Luke's alibi was flimsy. Luke had claimed that he was home cooking dinner at the time of the murder. His brother and mum initially corroborated this story. However, later on, Luke's brother Sean was questioned by police again about this story and he said he was actually watching pornography upstairs and he couldn't be sure that Luke was actually at home. Whilst these were the three main points, the prosecution also believed that Luke had murdered Jodie after being inspired by the Black Dahlia case. There was also a knife pouch found in Luke's room which I mentioned earlier. It had JJ 1989-2003 to and The finest day I ever had was when Tomorrow Never Came, written on it in pen. The knife from this pouch was never found, and the prosecution said that only the killer would do something like this. Luke's defence put forward the case that despite over 100 articles of evidence being collected from the crime scene and from Jodie's body, including semen, saliva, blood and hair, there were no DNA links to Luke Mitchell. They also argued that Luke had been the subject of unfair and unjust press coverage before his trial, meaning that he could not be fairly put before a jury. Finally, they also contested the point that Luke had led searchers to Jodie's body. They argued that Luke's dog Mia was the one who did this, not Luke himself. After 42 days, the trial ended making it the longest criminal trial in Scottish history at that time. On the 21st of January 2005, after five hours of deliberation, the jury found Luke Mitchell guilty of the murder of Jodie Jones. Judge Nimmo Smith sentenced Luke to a minimum of 20 years in prison before being considered for parole. So, that was the end of it. Or was it? I mentioned at the start of this podcast that this case had received significant media attention in the last few years and I'm going to speak about that more now. There are a great deal of people who believe that Luke Mitchell murdered Jodie Jones and that the right person is in jail. There are also a great deal of people who believe that Luke Mitchell is innocent and that he is serving a sentence for a crime he did not commit. In the time that Luke has been in jail, He's launched several appeals against his sentence, always maintaining his innocence. These appeals have all been rejected. In 2021, a documentary called Murder in a Small Town was broadcast on Channel 5, with 1.5 million people watching. This documentary was in Luke's favour and was created to put forward other possible suspects who might have murdered Jodie instead of Luke Mitchell it called the police investigation into question and raised points that the public might not have been aware of and that may support luke's innocence i'm going to give you a summary of why luke's supporters believe that he is innocent in the murder of jodie jones and who they believe may have done this instead firstly the evidence gathered from the crime scene and from jodie's body does not point to luke at all as mentioned This was a horrific and violent crime in which Jodie lost a significant amount of blood and she fought back. The perpetrator would most likely have some of Jodie's blood on them or on their clothing and possibly even have injuries themselves. Not one person described Luke as covered in blood or injured in any way. You might recall that the police swabbed Luke and took his clothes. They described Luke's hair as being unwashed. And when they scraped under his nails, they were dirty, meaning he couldn't have killed Jodie and then washed the evidence from himself. Another point brought up is that near Jodie's body, around 20 metres away, a condom full of fresh semen was found. This seems like something police should have focused on, especially as they implied in their questioning to Luke that the murder had a sexual nature and the fact that small amounts of sperm were found on Jodie's body in two places. However, police were unable to trace the owner at the time, and didn't focus on this during their investigation. Three years later, a DNA match was found when the owner of the DNA was entered into the database for another crime. This man's official story is that on the night that Jodie was murdered, he'd entered the woods around 8 or 9pm, and walked along the strip behind the wall. Despite it being daylight until around 10pm on that day, he claims he did not see Jodie's body, which police say should have been there since quarter past five that evening. This man told the police he had gone to the woods to masturbate due to sharing a room with his brother at home and having no privacy. He said his friend had given him the condom. When his friend was asked, he denied this. When the initial man was asked why he had lied, he responded with, I had to say something. This man also told the police that he had gone back to masturbate again behind the tree there the day after the murder took place, despite knowing someone had been killed there. Finally, the name Mark Kane is brought up as another possible suspect and was examined in the Channel 5 documentary. A friend of Mark, Scott Forbes, told the filmmakers that Mark had visited him on the day after Jodie was murdered and was very disturbed. He described him as having scratches on his face and said that he'd been drinking and taking drugs in New Battle Abbey Woods, near where Jodie was murdered. When Scott asked him about the scratches, Mark said he'd fallen into a bush. But when Scott continued to ask, not buying Mark's story he left Scott's flat in a hurry. Mark has recently passed away and police said he's not a suspect. With Luke's 20-year sentence coming to an end very soon, it doesn't mean that he's going to be released from prison. It just means that he may be considered for parole. Despite being officially solved and with a suspect in jail, this case will most likely remain in the media and in people's minds for many years to come. As this episode comes to an end, I wanted to bring it back round to the person at the centre of all of this, Jodie Jones. It's easy for a victim of a horrific crime like this to become so minimal in their own case, but I wanted to take this moment to remember Jodie as a teenage girl who loved music, who loved expressing herself, who had a talent for art and poetry, who loved sunflowers, and was described as a ray of sunshine by her family. I hope that whatever happens in the future of this case, Jodie has justice. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If the platform you are listening on allows reviews, I'd be grateful to hear what you think. And I hope to see you in the next episode.